Everybody doing okay? <laughs> okay, good, good, good. Good to see you guys. Um, at the risk of sounding like a creepy, weird guy, that was my wife singing over here, and every time she sings, I'm like, man, she looks good. And I just kind of stare at her and give her like googly eyes, and like, that's probably a weird thing to do when you're the pastor of a church on a stage in front of a lot of people, but um, she's about to turn 40, and she looks amazing, right? And so like she... It's weird. Whenever you say like, whenever you say something like that about your wife, people don't know what to do. You're like, "Does my wife look good?" And you're like, uh, "I don't know how to answer that question." Right? It's just kind of awkward and strange. So, uh, no, sorry, I put you in that predicament. Um, <laughs> I gotta stop. Okay, so we have been doing the Gospel of Matthew. We've been covering this for quite some time, and we uh, got about seventy percent through chapter nineteen last week. We're gonna finish up chapter nineteen, and we're gonna do a little bit of chapter. 20 today, and let me tell you kind of where we're at in the story if you haven't been here, or maybe you've never heard this story before. So the Gospel of Matthew, it, it, it's so fascinating that we chose this book. We've been doing this book all year, and it's been a year, right? Unless you've just like been in a cave somewhere in the Grand Caymans or something. Um, the world is, is in, a, in a pretty rough spot right now, and um, we couldn't have picked a better book to speak to the times and, and kind of what's happening around us and what culture and society looks like because the Gospel of Matthew is a book on how to follow Jesus. It's a book of discipleship, right? Not just about Jesus' life, but how we are to respond to Jesus' life and kind of follow after him. So in chapter 19, let me, let me tell you where we are in this story, in the narrative, right? So Jesus is traveling around. He's been in more rural areas, kind of in North Israel, and he's been honing in on 12 of his followers, the 12 disciples. Now, there's a lot of people that are following Jesus, but he's focusing in on these 12. He's teaching them. He's using all these opportunities to kind of pour into them and tell them how to go out and be the church because this group of men are literally gonna go out. They're gonna spread out and go across the whole world. They're gonna take the message of Jesus everywhere, right? So at this time, Jesus is close to the end of his life on earth. In fact, in the next couple of chapters, we're going to be entering in basically from about chapter 20 on. We're in the last week or two of Jesus's life. He's not going to be uh, uh, on this earth much longer, right, in the book of Matthew. We're, we're kind of coming to the conclusion of his life. So Jesus is pouring into his disciples. At one point, he's pouring into his disciples. He's moving back into more of the, the urban areas, specifically Jerusalem, which is the capital where he's going to be crucified. And in chapter 19, he gets into a debate with the religious leaders about divorce. And right after that debate, this man called the rich young ruler walks up to Jesus. And he's become kind of a, a famous character in the Bible. And this rich young ruler walks up to Jesus and he asks him a very fascinating question. He says, what do I have to do to earn eternal life? What do I have to do? What works do I have to do to go to heaven? And Jesus says, well, none of us can do anything good. There's only one that's good, that's God. And so do what God tells you to do, follow the 10 commandments. And the young man says, well, I've done it, right? Haven't killed anyone, haven't stolen anything, haven't committed adultery, kind of went down and checked off the list. But Jesus understood, because Jesus is God in the flesh, that this man had not given everything. On paper, he looked really good, but his heart was still in a bad place. So Jesus says, here's what you got to do. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And if you weren't here last week, it's kind of a, a, a sad ending. This rich young ruler walks away. It says he walks away upset, right? He's very discouraged because he didn't want to give up all his stuff. And we talked about last week, it's not money for all of us. For a lot of us, we don't want to give up our sexuality. We don't want to give up our color of our skin. We don't want to give up our nationality. We don't want to give up our success. We may not want to give up our, our relationships. There's things that all of us kind of hold back and we're kind of reluctant to give to God, right? But it's until we give him everything that we can truly follow him. We have to be willing to lay it all down. So this week, we're going to continue on this, this idea a little bit. And I'm kind of excited about this because I, I, I feel like the big problem right now in Christianity in the United States is we're not looking through the right filter, right? We're not viewing other people. We're not viewing God. We're not viewing ourselves. We're not viewing culture and society through the filter of the word of God and of Jesus himself. So what we're going to talk about today is Jesus is going to repeat the same phrase two times today that we're going to read it. He's going to say the first will be last and the last will be first. And what Jesus is doing with his disciples in the lesson we're going to talk about today, and what he's hopefully doing with us, right? Because we should be his disciples, is he's telling us, you've been looking at the world this way, 
<laughs> I want to flip that around and I want you to look at it a different way. I want you to have a different perspective of others, of you, of society, of government, of money, of success. I want you to look at it from my vantage point and not your vantage point. That's what we're going to talk about today, worldview, okay? So you should have got a notes handout uh, at all the doors, all two of them. When you came in, you should have got a notes handout. If you didn't, everything should be on the screens. If you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app. If you download that, click on service time, sermon notes, everything should be there. If you have a Bible, we're in the first book of the New Testament at the uh, end of the 19th chapter, and we will roll right over into the 20th chapter, okay? All right, if everyone's ready to rock and roll, we will pray, and we'll see where God takes us, okay? Father, Lord, we love you. God, I love this church, Lord, the men and women in this room, Lord, the people who may be watching online at home right now. Uh, Father, I pray that you bless these people, God, our church. Lord, I pray, God, that you don't only bless our church, I pray that you bless every church in our city, God. Give us wisdom, Lord. Give us patience. Give us peace and humility, Father. We need those things. Father, Lord, I pray that we're the beacon of light to our city. I pray, God, that we have a good reputation with those around us, Lord. I pray for, Lord, the churches that we work with in New England and other parts of the world. Pray for the nonprofits that we work with, God. And, and Father, I pray right now as, as, as we get into the lesson, Lord, I pray that everything that we talk about today, Lord, that it, first of all, that it honors you, it glorifies you. And then second, Lord, that it, it, it sharpens us, that it makes us better people, God. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you, Lord. And we pray all these things in your son's name, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's rock and roll. You guys are so quiet. That's okay. It's fine. All right, here we go. So I was saved in a Pentecostal church where like all you had to do is get up there and say hello. And I mean, just everyone goes bonkers, right? You know, people start running around and hitting tambourines. I'm not suggesting you do that, but I'm just saying. All right, okay. There we go. Cool. All right. So, so Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished. And they asked, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter responded to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, in the renewal of all things, I love that phrase, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and they will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Okay, so here's what happened. Right after the rich young ruler came up that we talked about last week, and if you weren't here, you can go back and read that. The 12 disciples saw this conversation between this rich young man and Jesus. When the rich young man walked away disappointed because he didn't want to give up everything that he had, Jesus saw this as an opportunity to teach his disciples a lesson because they just saw it, right? So he turns around and Jesus is going to teach his disciples the pitfalls of money and the pitfalls of selfishness. Now here's the thing. Jesus didn't say that rich people can't go to heaven. In fact, the Bible never says that money is evil. A lot of people say, well, money is the root of all evil. No, no, no. The Bible says it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Money in and of itself is a piece of paper that we exchange for goods and services, right? That's all money is. But it's when we fall in love with what money brings us. That's the danger. And Jesus says, because wealthy people have access to so much comfort, it is sometimes difficult for them to trust Jesus because their money brings them so much, right? He even uses this very interesting analogy. 
Now, every time I have ever taught the book of Matthew, someone sends me an email. Do you know what that eye of the needle means, Corey? There was a gate in Jerusalem called the needle gate and camels had to like bow down and you had to get everything off of them to get them through. Now, the problem with that is there is no archeological or historical evidence whatsoever of that. I think that's just kind of a fun story that Christians made up somewhere down the line. So what that probably is, is a metaphor. Jesus uses a lot of them. So Jesus was saying without God, that's important, A rich person going to heaven is like taking this huge animal and sticking it through the eye of a needle. So it was more than likely just a metaphor. And so what was interesting about that is that kind of caught the disciples off guard. Because in the culture of this time, the religious world told you that anyone who was wealthy was blessed by God. It's called the prosperity gospel. That's what we call it nowadays, right? This this very false teaching that just because you're a follower of God that you're going to be monetarily blessed. And so when Jesus said that wealth actually makes it harder to be saved, it says that they were utterly astonished. Why? That's not what we've been told, right? But Jesus says, it's okay, because with God, all things are possible. This is one of those scriptures that we take way out of context. This doesn't mean that like any of you can make the basketball team. That's not what that scripture means, right? But with God, all things is possible, right? So I'm trying out for the football team. So look, I'm a 5'10 white guy in his 40s. I'm never going to play for the Chicago Bulls as much as I would like to do that. But Corey, with God, all things are possible. Yes, but that's not what the scripture is talking about right here. This is talking about salvation, that it doesn't matter what your circumstances in life are. With God, all people can be saved is what Jesus means in this. This isn't like you making the cheerleading squad that is taking way out of context. This is our ability to both be successful and righteous simultaneously. If we have God in our life, yes, we can be successful and we can be righteous at the same time, but without God, that is impossible, right? That's what that means. So Peter, who's kind of the leader of the disciples, he speaks up and these guys had given up everything. Now, when we read the Bible, we often think, man, all the disciples were just fishermen. They were just poor. Actually, Peter was the owner of a fishing company. So he probably would have been a pretty successful guy. Probably had a couple of employees, made pretty decent money. Peter probably did pretty well for himself, but he gave that up. They gave up houses. They gave up comfort. They gave up family. They gave up friends. They gave up everything to follow Jesus. And so what Peter was doing is he looked at how much he had given up, but he needed reassurance from Jesus. Jesus, you're going you're gonna to get our back, right? You're going you're gonna to reward us for how much sacrifice that we've done. Now, listen, that doesn't make Peter a bad guy. And I'm going to tell you what, all of you in your lives at one time or another, you're going to look up at God and be like, God, you need to tell me again that everything's going to be okay. I've given up a lot. That doesn't make you a bad person. In fact, John the Baptist did this earlier in the book of Matthew, if you were with us, right? John was about to sacrifice his life. And John got a couple of his followers and said, man, go double check that Jesus is the right guy that he's going to pay me back everything that I'm sacrificing? And Jesus said, absolutely. And so John was happy to sacrifice everything because he was reassured. So we we need that sometimes. And that's okay, guys. It's okay. God, you're, you're good, right? But the problem is this. We have so many distractions that God is showing a lot of us a lot of the times that we, we are taken care of and that we're going to be taken care of. But we have so much stuff kind of convoluting our frequency that we don't see it. Let me give you an example. I found myself over the years being like, God, I've given up so much for you. When are you going to bless me, right? When are you going to take care of me? And the whole time I'm doing this, my two healthy kids are playing in my house and and we got cars that run and my beautiful wife is cooking dinner. God, when are you going to take care of me? God's like, look around, dude. You know what? We live in the most prosperous free nation that has ever existed. And we have a whole group of people saying, oh, when are we going to get ours? And God's like, what else can I give you? You have everything, right? You have freedom. You have prosperity. You have the ability to be whatever you desire in this culture, right? We have been blessed. The problem is we have so many distractions that we don't see it. We don't listen for it. We're not paying attention. So look at how personal Jesus is. I love this. So Peter says, reassure us, Jesus. What's, wh- how are you going to reward us? What's, what's in this for us? And you can almost see Jesus kind of grabbing Peter by, by the face and saying, truly I tell you. Isn't that beautiful? Whenever Jesus says, truly I tell you, we should be listening, right? Our ears should be perking up because he's about to drop something serious on us. 
So he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, truly I tell you. And he tells Peter specifically what he is going to inherit and the other disciples. And then he tells Peter what everyone is going to inherit that has sacrificed houses or families or brothers and sisters, whatever the case may be for him. He goes, I'm gonna give you a hundred times what you sacrificed and I'm going to give you eternal life. So constantly the Bible reminds us that if we're, if we're obedient, if we're willing to give it all for him, God is going to reward us more than we can possibly comprehend. More than we can possibly comprehend. And for Peter, he's very specific. He says, in the time of renewal, that means when Jesus comes back and makes everything perfect, he says, I'm gonna be sitting on my throne and Peter, you're going to be sitting on a throne. There's going to be 12 thrones with me. Now, if you're wondering what the heck that means, you have to fast forward to Revelation chapter four. In Revelation chapter four, which is one of the most beautiful chapters in the entire Bible, John, one of the other disciples, sees the throne of God and he says there are 24 elders around the throne. Most scholars believe the 24 elders are the 12 tribes of Israel, right? 12 from the Old Testament and then the 12 disciples from the New Testament, which Peter would have been one of those. So Jesus is affirming to Peter, because of your great sacrifice, there's going to be a great reward. You're, you're going to be taken care of. You're going to be given authority in heaven. And then he concludes with this phrase, which we're going to talk about again later in the lesson, that the first will be last and the last will be first. And the reason why Jesus says this is he wants to shift the way that these men see everything. And he's, he's challenging us. He's challenging his disciples, but he's challenging us. Don't judge people's eternal rewards by human standards. What does that mean? So the rich young ruler from earlier on in chapter 19, he would have been like the equivalent of like, I don't know, like a, like a famous actor, right? Good looking, tons of money, a house on every continent, had everything going for him. And we look at people like that and we're like, man, we want to be that, right? That's why I wear, that's why I wear Sauvage Cologne, because I secretly want to be Johnny Depp. And we look at people, and we look at people like 1987 Johnny Depp, not Johnny Depp now, he's kind of lost his mind, right? But like, like 21 Jump Street era Johnny Depp, anyone, anyone? All right, okay, thank you. Okay, so we secretly think that these people are first in society. And God is saying, no, 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 no. This is maybe the most, guys, if you have tuned out to everything I've said, this is the most important thing I'm probably gonna tell you today. In God's economy, it is the contributors that are greater than the consumers. See, in the world's economy, everything you guys are told is, get what's yours, right? Acquire what's yours, and if you go into too much debt, we'll, we'll put it off on someone else and make them pay for it. Acquire as much as you can. It's all about you, right? That's why TikTok is selling for $30 billion, because it's this self-expression, right? It's this us, the whole world kind of revolves around us. You know what the number one problem with humanity is right now? We have an unrealistic view of ourselves. We think we're way more than what we actually are, right? World traveler, entrepreneur, never been further than Kentucky, never sold and bought a thing, right? We think we're a lot more than what we are. But in God's economy, it is those who give that are the first, right? Not those who are constantly taking. And see, here's the thing is God sees all this. He's all-knowing, he's faithful, and he's faithful to give us what we've earned, whether that be a reward for sacrifice or whether that be punishment for constantly consuming, right? God sees all this. Okay, a parable right here. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on one denarius, he sent them into the vineyard for the day. When he went out at about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. So he said to them, you also go out into my vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. At about noon and about three, he went out again and did the same thing. Then at about five, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they said to him. So you also go to my vineyard, he told them. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, 
Call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired at about five came, they received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed that they would get more, but they also received a denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. These last men put in one hour and you made them equal to us and we bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. He replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on one denarius? Take what is yours and go. I want to give the last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I am generous. So the first will be last. I'm sorry. So the last will be first and the first will be last. So there's a lot in this parable, right? A lot about humanity in this parable. And this parable goes back because Jesus is still teaching a lesson about the rich young ruler. Now, when the rich young ruler came up to Jesus, he asked, what can I do to be saved? And the point was, is nothing right? It's not by your work that you're saved. It's by God's work that you are saved. Now we have to be careful with that. And the reason why we have a whole Bible is not so we can just take one scripture and exploit it and neglect the others. So what a lot of people do is because a lot of people say we are saved by grace through faith, which is the Bible. You're not saved by your works. They take that as I can give my life to, to Jesus when I'm 12, year old, 12 years old and do nothing again ever, but I'm saved by grace. That's bad theology. It's bad theology because the brother of Jesus, James, says in chapter two that faith without works is absolutely dead. It's not real faith at all. What that means is this, is we are not saved by our works, but because we've been saved by his works, we are called to go out and do good works that glorify our Father in heaven. That's a quote directly from Jesus. So because we've been saved by grace, <laughs> that transaction should make us want to go out and show other people that grace, do good things for the world around us in the hopes that they would see Jesus reflected in our actions. We are called to go do good things. That advances the kingdom of God. And so Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like, I know you guys know this because you're a smart crowd, but whenever Jesus would tell a short story, a parable, he would usually begin it with the kingdom of heaven is like. And basically, he was going to tell a story that, that any of the children in this room could probably understand pretty easy. But the morals of that story reflect how God works. It reflects how the kingdom of God works. And so the story about the vineyard is pretty easy, right? There's a landowner, which represents God, and he hires different people throughout the day, right? Six in the morning, nine in the morning, 12, three, and five. And so they work the day, and, and, and the working day would end at six. So a lot different than our culture. They would work six to six every day, right? And so they would get off at six. So some people only worked an hour. Some people worked 12 hours. And what the workers represent are us, those of us in this room, those who work for the landowner who is God, okay? So what does this mean? Why hire people at different times of the day? It can mean one of two things. The first thing it can mean is what stage in our life did we become Christians? So I was about 23 years old when I got saved. Um, you know, my, my oldest daughter, she got baptized and gave her life to Jesus when she was, I think, eight or nine. So she's, you know, starting off pretty young. Last year, I baptized a woman from Southern California who was in her mid-70s before she became a believer and got baptized. So there's different stages in life. It can represent that. Or maybe it's not how long we've been a believer, but how much we've done for the kingdom. So there's some people who are saved, right? But maybe they've done just kind of the bare minimum, right? The least amount of flair, that they've done the bare minimum to get to heaven. <laughs> and then maybe there's some people who have gone above and beyond, right? And they've done so much for the kingdom. The point is this, though, that God rewards people based on what he sees, and he sees everything. He rewards people based on his grace and his wisdom. And the way God rewards people may look dramatically different than the way we might reward people. We're going to be shocked when we get to heaven. I think there's some of you, I'm going to be mowing your grass in heaven, right? 
Some people think, well, he's up there on the stage, but there's some of you that have done so much more than I have for the kingdom of God. And if we're mowing grass in heaven, I'll be more than happy to mow your grass, right? I just wanna be in heaven. But we're gonna be compensated a little bit differently than what maybe we think here. Also notice this, that the foreman pays the people in reverse order. So what this is doing, it is further showing the disciples that things are not always the way that we think they are, right? So everyone's gonna get paid. So the people who got hired last are getting paid first and the people who worked all day are getting paid last. And of course, when that happened, the ones who had been there all day, look at the ones who'd only been there for an hour and they're like, what the heck? That's not fair. How often do we hear that in our culture? That's not fair that they have that and I have this. And what Jesus is highlighting in this parable is we, I'm talking to all of us, guys, we have a tendency to be self-righteous, which means we compare ourselves to each other and we're called not to do that. But that's what we do, isn't it? I may look at porn, but at least I'm not cheating on my wife like that guy is, right? Well, I may lie every once in a while, but at least I'm not lying on my taxes like she is. And we compare ourselves to each other. Well, you know, I know that, that God's given me these talents and abilities, but, you know, I go to church every once in a while. What about them? And here's the thing. God is not going to judge us based on how we compare with each other. God is going to judge us based on the potential that he has given us. And if he has given us much, we're responsible for much. So praise God. If you have been blessed financially, you are held to a different standard because God has given you much money. So what you do with that is going to be held under a very tight judgment. If you've been blessed with talents and abilities, praise God, you better be using those for the glory of the kingdom. You better be using those for, for other people because God, if he has given you much. If he's given you a charismatic personality that instantly connects with people, but you refuse to build relationships, if you refuse to build bridges with other people, right? God's gonna hold you into account for that. For much is given, much is required. So let's take that on a macro scale. Let's go back to this idea that we live in the freest, most prosperous nation that has ever existed. And Christianity is declining at alarming rates in the United States. Do you not think that God is going to hold us accountable as a people? Maybe he already is. Uh-oh. Maybe the United States looks the way it does because we have been given so much and we have squandered it for so many decades, right? The freedom and abilities that we have the impact that we can make on the world and on each other? Have we used those things to the glory of God and the benefit of others? Or have we just become a selfish people? And so all the workers, right? They had agreed on their compensation. So the one who got hired at five agreed on a denarius. The one who got hired at six in the morning also agreed on a denarius. But when they saw people getting the same reward that they got, they started complaining. Do you know what that highlights? That highlights the sin of coveting what other people have. That's a 10 commandment, brothers and sisters. And we live in a culture right now that constantly, whenever our neighbor gets a pool put in, we had a neighbor get a pool put in and I see it every day and I'm like, anyway, so like whenever you see someone get something that you really want, right? Man, it's a really nice in-ground pool too. I mean, like it's a nice pool. Anyways, when you see someone that has something that you wish you had and you start getting jealous of that, that is a sin. That's a sin. It's a sin to look at what other people's have, the kind of home they have or the kind of car they drive and to be coveting, to want those things and to be jealous, that is wrong. And what we do is we often forget that maybe that person is 20 years older than me, has a PhD or an MBA, they work 60 hours a week. Maybe that's why they have things that I don't have, right? Or maybe God entrusted them with that and God knew he couldn't entrust me with that. The issue is this. We need to take our eyes off everyone else and we need to be looking up to God and be content with what he has trusted us with. We need to work hard. We need to be good stewards and just know if God gives me this, praise God. If he doesn't, it's in God's wisdom that I don't have whatever it is. I'll be honest. There's a lot of us in this room that we're not wealthy because God knows he can't trust us with it. Wealth is not always a blessing. For some people, it is a curse and it exposes more of the evil that's in their heart. God knows, and there's a reason why all of us are in the predicaments or situations or whatever we are right now, because God wants us there, right? 
Maybe God's trying to teach us a lesson. So we need to be content with what we have. We also need to remember that God is personal, which means every single one of us in this room, everyone watching right now, whether you believe in Jesus or not, the Bible says every single knee will bow to him, which means we will all have to stand in front of our creator and we will have to give an account for how we've lived and we will not be able to point the fingers at anyone else. We will not have the luxury as we stand in front of Christ of saying, well, it was my mom's fault. It was my dad's fault. It was Donald Trump's fault. It was Barack Obama's fault. It was my pastor's fault. It was my neighbor's fault. It was my wife's fault. It was what, we will not have that luxury. Because here's the thing, listen, even if awful things have happened to you, and I'm sorry for that, if you are a Christian, you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit that as the Bible says, makes you more than an overcomer. So regardless of what has happened in your life, God has given you the tool and the vessel and the instrument to overcome hatred, to overcome circumstances, to overcome insecurities, to overcome anxiety and fear. God has given you the comforter and counselor. So when we stand in front of him, there will be no excuse. God has given us all the tools to succeed and we won't be able to point the finger at anyone else. We will not have that luxury of blame shifting we will have to be held accountable for what we've done. Here, let's take it even deeper. God's even going to take our motives into account. What that means is this. We can be just like the rich young ruler and say, oh, I went to church. I, I looked the part. I had the bumper sticker. I got a cross tattooed on my forearm. Like I did all the things right. Man, I had the picture of me reading the Bible with the bagel at Just Love Coffee. I mean, like, God, I did everything the way you wanted me to. But here's the thing, and, and this is the big kick I've been on, is even Paul brings this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The question is, why do you do those things? Even the rich young ruler checked off all the boxes, but Jesus knew that his motives were bad. Jesus knew that his heart was not in alignment. Here's the question we need to ask ourselves with everything we do. With everything we do, does this glorify God and does it bless other people? Does this action, does me taking the picture and putting it on social media so everyone knows how good of a Christian I am, does that glorify God? Does that bless other people? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with you posting a scripture. I do that occasionally. But the motive is why. Why are you doing this? Why do we speak the way we speak? Why do we talk to people the way we do? Why do we drive the car that we drive? Listen, I don't think there's anything morally wrong with getting tattoos, but whenever people ask, do you think it's a sin to get a tattoo? I said, what's your heart behind it? I don't think the actual ink in your skin is a sin, but you have to check your heart. Why are you doing that? Is it because you're feeling insecure? Is it because you're trying to get attention? Is it, what, what is the heart behind it? That's the question. Why? Why do we do what we do? And then the landowner, God, right, looks at the other workers and he says, are you jealous because I am generous? That goes back to this idea of selfishness and coveting what our neighbors have. Listen, when your neighbor gets the beautiful in-ground pool, instead of coveting, do we say, praise God, I'm glad that they get that pool, right? It's 98 degrees, I don't have a pool, but praise God that they have that pool. I'm just joking, I'm not that bitter over it. But do we look and say, praise God that they're blessed? When that other person at the job gets a promotion, instead of his, oh, well, it should have been me. Man, praise God. Maybe they needed the money more than I did, right? When we see others getting accolades and affirmation, maybe awards or employee of the month or whatever the case may be, instead of that jealousy and that envy, do we say, man, praise God for them. That's great. We have to ask ourselves, do we want others to be blessed? Or do we find ourselves coming back to self, back to us, self-centeredness? And then maybe even a bigger question is, do we trust that God sees it all? What if you're never rewarded in this life? Do you trust that God sees everything, the heart, the actions, and that he is going to take care of you, right? Do we trust God with that stuff? If we're just being human in here, guys, there's sometimes I don't. Look around. You're just like, man, why is that happening over there and it's not happening here? But we have to trust that God knows what he's doing. Even more than that, maybe the problem is, is we're not looking at it from the right angle at all. See, we thought the first were here and the last were there, but Jesus says the first are going to be last. And 
The last are going to be first. You've been looking at it completely backwards. But in order to have the perspective, the worldview, the lens that God wants us to have, first we must constantly be evaluating why we do what we do. Listen, I'm not trying to be condemning in this room, but I just, I wanna, I wanna ask you something. And, and guys, I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on a certain gender and I'm not trying to let the other gender off the hook. But young ladies, why do you post that picture? What's the heart behind that? If you have a scripture on your Instagram and you're posting this picture, right, that shows everything, does that first bring glory to God? Does that bless people that see that? Is that a good thing for the kingdom? I'm just asking, listen, I'm not trying to, is it, is it a matter of insecurity? Is it a matter of, of affection and attention? Is it because you really don't think that you're valued, that you have to somehow get this affirmation from men that really don't value you? They just see you as a commodity? Why, why do these pictures exist? What is the heart behind that, Christian? What is the heart behind that? What is the heart behind your arguments and debates? What is the heart behind... I shouldn't go there. What's the heart? What's the heart when you walk into a restaurant and, and, and you're rude to your waiter or you have to prove your point or you have an agenda? What's the heart, brother, sister, Christian? What is the heart? Why do we think the things we do and, and, and act the way we do? What is the heart behind it? That's what I want you to ask yourself next time you take the picture or walk in somewhere and have an agenda or next time you want to get into an, a debate or an argument with, a, with, with someone that's different from you. Why are you doing that? Is it for the glory of God and the blessing of other people? Is that why you're doing it? If we would start asking ourselves those two questions, does this glorify God? Does this bless people around me? We would act so differently. We would act so differently. But the problem is, is we tend to go back towards jealousy. We tend to go back towards self. We tend to go back to wanting what other people have. We tend to go back to being upset when other people get attention that we don't get or rewards or whatever. And so it goes back to us. And that's not where God wants us to hang out. So if we're going to have the kind of view that God wants us to have, we have to live a life of sacrifice. Let me ask you this. And again, guys, I'm not trying to be condemning in here today. That's not what I'm trying to do. Because I have to ask myself this question all the time. Are we giving God our best? What is there, 168 hours in a week somewhere in that ballpark? And people are like, man, I go to church every week. Awesome. So you gave an hour and a half to God out of that 168. Is that our best? Is that giving the, listen, is that giving the Savior that hung on a cross for nine hours and bled to death? Is that giving him our best? Honestly, is that the best we can do as people who claim to follow him? And, and that's if we make it to church once a week. Hour and a half, hour and a half. Sit there for an hour and a half? What are we going to do? I just watched 12 hours of Stranger Things. What in the heck am I going to do for an hour and a half with God? Man, I don't know if I can do it. Are we giving our best to other people? Are you giving your best to non-believers? Are you giving your best to the lost? Corey, you care way too much about the lost. I'll take that criticism. That's great. I like that. Jesus told us to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. The Bible tells us to have a good reputation with those that are not of the faith. Why? In the hopes that they can see how we live and give glory to Jesus Christ. You know what the bottom line about treating non-believers well is? We don't want them to go to hell. We want them to go to heaven. Well, Corey, it's just all about numbers at your church. Hold on a second. Kind of. I want more people to be with me in heaven than people be in hell. I want that number to be tipped in my favor. Absolutely, 100%. Right? about big churches. It's about a big kingdom of God. That's what it's about, right? Do you have a good reputation with the non-believers around you? Have you given the non-believing community your best? Have you given them your best? Well, Corey, they're mean. Well, Jesus said, pray for them. Well, they hate me. <laughs> Jesus said, love them. Well, they stole my shoes. Jesus said, give them your shirt. We don't like those scriptures, do we? We don't like that stuff. We want to argue, we want to fight, we want to raise our fists, don't we? 
Are we giving our best to other believers? Instead of us arguing about what church is better, right? One of the neatest things about our worship night that's coming up is we're doing it with New Vision and we're doing it with First Baptist Murfreesboro. That's cool, man. Because we're not against those churches. Man, I'm not against Brady Cooper or Pastor Allen or Pastor David over North Boulevard. Those are my brothers, man. Like, I want their churches to grow and flourish. We're on the same team. We're all trying to get to the same place. Are we giving each other our best? Do we blame others? Listen, man, I had a, I had a tumultuous childhood. There had to come a time, though, where I couldn't blame my father for my insecurities anymore. I gotta take ownership because God gave me the Holy Spirit. He gave me the Prince of Peace, the Comforter, the Counselor. He gave me the gifts of the Holy Spirit and I should be producing the fruit of that. I can't be blaming everyone forever. Do we trust that God is just, that he sees it all? Where are the humble peacemakers right now? Do you know there's so much chaos in the world right now? And do you want to know how that's not of God? Because the Bible says that God is a God of order and that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. There is no peace out there. There is no order. There is no civility in the world right now. But do you know who is supposed to bring that civility to the world? You, me. Where are the peacemakers? Where are you? I see all the debaters. I see all the vain babblers, as the Bible calls it. I see all the people who want to fight. Where are the humble peacemakers? Where are you? Where are the ones that walk into a situation and bring the light and bring order? Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says. James says that God draws near to the humble. Where are they? I know they're out there. I know that you are them. But we need to be out in that dark world. Here's what Jesus is trying to do through what we talked about today. Jesus, the whole point of these passages, the whole reason why he said the first will be last and the last will be first is Jesus said, you're looking at everything through the wrong lens. You're looking at it through the lens of the world. And guys, if we haven't learned anything in 2020, have you not seen Jesus knock down every idol of American culture? Our religious leaders fall. Our sports fall, our governments fall, our economies fall. Everything is, God is desperately trying to get our attention, trying to get us to see that a perspective from the world does not work. It doesn't work. But what happens is this, and this is where people watch me or listen to me, and well, Corey's anti-voting, he's anti-Republican, he's anti-Democrat, he's anti-Fox, he's anti-Cena. I'm not, I'm not anti all those things. But here's the problem. When we start going to those things first and getting our worldview from the news, it's no wonder everyone hates everyone else. It's no wonder because every black person wants to steal from you and every white person is a racist. Every Republican has no heart and every Democrat wants to kill every baby. That's what they feed you. Do you know that's how they make their money is to keep you scared and in front of the TV. That's how they get rich off you. And what happens is if we constantly view others, if we constantly view God, if we, if we constantly view ourselves through the lens of the world, it's always going to be broken. It's always going to be chaotic. Young lady, do you know why you have to feel the need to take that picture of your body? Because the world tells you you are of no worth unless you put out. You're of no worth unless you're beautiful. Man, and God looks at that and says, that's a lie. I didn't die for you because of the shape of your body. I didn't die for you by how many men you could please. I died for you because you're made in my image. Because I love you. You don't have to take that. You don't need the affirmation from these men that really don't value you at all. I give you affirmation. I give you value. But if we look at ourselves through the lens that the world puts in front of us, it's going to be distorted. So here's the thing. What is your filter? What is your lens? By what do you see everything around you? Is it God? Do we rely on the Holy Spirit to, 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 to lead us, to counsel us, to comfort us? What, if you're being honest this morning, what steers your perspective? 
Now, I said that I'm not anti-voting. I'm not anti-Fox or CNN or Wall Street Journal. I'm not anti-you watching sports or movies or listening to music. But here's where we have to get things in the right order. Paul wrote this to the Romans, the Christians in Rome. If you go back and study the Roman Empire, it looks eerily like Americanism right now. Very, very close. Even the structure of government was the same. We're a republic, they're a republic. Very, very similar, right? The problem was, is Paul had to write to the Christians in Rome and he said, do not be conformed to that. In our day and age, Paul would say, don't be conformed to CNN. Don't be conformed to Fox. Don't be conformed to what is popular in music or movies. Don't be conformed to that. It's not that you can't engage the world, but if we're not using the proper lens, if we haven't been transformed by the renewing of our mind, we have no, look at this, this is so important. If we approach the news or the media or sports or family or ourselves or others or whatever, if we approach them without the filter of the Bible, look what we are unable to do. We are unable to discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect. I have nothing wrong with you voting, but if you're not voting with the lens of Jesus, you're going to vote wrong. You're not going to know what's good. You're not going to know what's pleasing. You're not going to know what the will of God is. I'm not against you watching the news. But if you watch the news without the word of God as your filter, you're not going to know what's good. You're not going to know what's pleasing. You're not going to know what the perfect will of God is. I'm not wrong with, I'm not got nothing wrong with you watching movies. But if you watch movies and you don't have the filter of God, you're not going to know what's perfect and pleasing. You're not going to know what's good. I'm not against you living. I'm for you living. But I'm for you looking at it from a different perspective. What the world has told you is first. God says it's last. And what the world hasn't valued, God says that's what I value. How do you see the world around you? By what perspective? <laughs> By what lens? If you look at the things going on in culture right now through the lens of the news, it's just going to make you angry. It's just going to make you mad. There's a lot of mad Christians right now. But if we look at humanity through the lens of Jesus, <laughs> as the Roman soldiers were nailing his feet to the cross, Jesus didn't get into a political debate. He didn't put them down. He didn't demean them. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How can, we, how can we expect a non-believing world to live like they're believers when the church has failed so much to go and engage, to go and speak, to go and look at people with empathy and love and compassion, and we wonder why there's so much violence? It's because even the church hasn't looked at people through the eyes of God. How do you see yourself? How do you see your neighbor? How do you see authority? How do you see the church? What perspective do we use? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Let me challenge you. If your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, it's a simple challenge, and I mean it. My gosh, my desire today was not to, to, to condemn anyone. That's not what Jesus does. In fact, the Bible says Jesus didn't come to bring condemnation. He came to bring us liberation from that. So, so on that note, let me tell you something. If you would start your day with a little bit of prayer, if you would start your day with a little bit of Bible reading, I'm not talking about like, you know, reading 50, 60 pages, read a chapter. Just read a little bit. If you would start your day with the filter of God, let me tell you what, you're not gonna wanna fight. You're not gonna have to feel the need to, to promote your body or to sell out your integrity for the affirmation of other people. You're not gonna feel that desire. 
because you're going to start looking at yourself. You're going to start looking at other people through the lens of God. And the things that we thought were so important, we're going to find out or not. And then the things like humility and peace and love and compassion and grace, the things that the world doesn't value right now, we're going to start to see that those are the things that are really going to make a change. They're going to make a change in your relationships. They're going to make a change in you. They're going to make a change in your neighborhoods. First will be last, and the last will be first. I want to challenge you. Put on the filter of the word. Put on the filter of Jesus. See if it doesn't change your life. Up here at the front, Pastor Isaac is up here. He's our discipleship pastor. If you do not have a relationship with God and you want to talk to someone, ask questions, any questions you want, come up here and talk to Isaac. If you're watching online, info at experiencecc.com. If you're in this room and you need prayer, there's men and women on both sides of the stage. They'd love to pray with you for anything. It doesn't matter what it is. Maybe you just need someone to kind of walk with you for a minute. Hey, the last thing is, is you have communion in your hands. And if you're watching online, I hope you, you join us somehow with communion. That communion represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, that communion, that, that bread and that wine, that reminds us that God sees you as his masterpiece. Do you know you are the only thing created that looks like God? You're it. You are made in the image of God. Did you know that? God sees you as invaluable. He sees you worth so much that God gave his only son that if we would just believe in him, we will not die but have everlasting life. That's how God sees you. And we forget, don't we? We forget. We forget that the King of kings and Lord of lords looks at us with such adoration. And he wants to teach us to look at others like that. We can take that communion and we can be reminded that God loves us. Father, Lord, I love you so much, God. Lord, I love the brothers and sisters, friends in this room, God, and everyone who's watching online. Father, Lord, let us understand better how you see us. Lord, let us put on the filter, the lens, God, of your word and of you. Let us lean on your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us. Lord, don't let us be afraid of the world. But Lord, let us engage the world from your perspective. God, if people hate us, let us love them. If they persecute us, let us pray for them. Even the most extreme, God. We love you. We thank you. Bless my brothers and sisters, God, and lead them until we meet again, Father. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys very much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you, guys.